Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. In Ephesians, Paul has prayed for the Christian readers that they may know the greatness of God towards his power in chapter 1. And then praise God for exercising the same mighty power in raising Christ from the dead and exalting him over all things, including the church, in verses 20 and 23 of chapter 1. He now reminds them of the mighty change that they have been affected by in their lives because they were spiritually dead, but out of his great kindness and mercy, God raised them and exalted them. We who call ourselves Christians need to understand that before we came to Christ, we were in a crisis situation. Worse than a job loss, worse than a doctor's diagnosis, worse than any human crisis imaginable. We had a threefold need for a Savior. There was a downward spiral. In verse 1, we needed a Savior because of our corruption and sin. In verse 2, we needed a Savior because of our captivity to Satan. And in verse 3, we needed a Savior because of our condemnation to hell. Dead in sin, captive to Satan, children of wrath. Our need of our Savior was so urgent and so critical, but God showed up. He showed up and he made us alive together with Christ. And this is good news. And we must recognize this today, brothers and sisters, that salvation belongs to the Lord and nothing is impossible for God. So you may be here today and say, Pastor Lardy, but my child is captive to the ways of the world, but God. My friend is hell-bent and doomed, but God. My brother or sister is spiritually dead, but God. Here's how we're going to handle this passage today. We're going to put verse 1 over and against verse 5 and 6. We were dead in sin, but God made us alive with Christ. We're going to put verse 2 over against verse 6. We were enslaved to the spirit of this age, But God freed us and seated us with Christ in heaven. And we're going to put verse 3 with 7. We were children of wrath, but God promises endless kindness to us. So the first part we're going to look at is we were dead in sin, but God made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 1 says we were dead in our trespasses and sin. 
That means, and the doctrine is, we were totally depraved. We lack the ability to come to Christ. And the songs that we have sung tonight, it expressed this. And all I have is Christ. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. Notice this. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. And the song, O great God, I was blinded by my sin. We had no ears to hear his voice. And in our theme song for the night, O but God, we were buried beneath our rebellion, lost without hope of redemption, blinded to our need for a savior. We were dead. We were incapable. There was no way we could turn to Christ. Dead people can't try harder, do better, or change themselves. We were dead. Got to experience a little bit of death this week before kickoff, and that was in the garage. So we have a lovely cat, Noel. And what she does is she is a defender of our territory. She defends the Lardy's houses from any rodents. And when she gets those rodents, the proud kitty cat that we have, she makes sure she usually leaves them right in a perfect spot where we can step on them. Well, this Wednesday, uh, we were in the garage, and my daughter looks, and all of a sudden, I hear this ear-piercing scream. <sighs> I'm not going to do it because it'll mess up your ears. And she's running out. Her brother's laughing at her. What's wrong? What's wrong? It's a dead mouse with its head ripped off. Um, I'm there. I'm kind of laughing because I'm like, oh, my goodness. But then I have to remember when I was in college, I ran and jumped on a desk to get away from a mouse. So I've grown up a little bit. But this, this mouse was dead, lifeless. You can't bring it back. More so than that, though, we were dead. What it means is that it would be like if Jesus walked by our open grave, instead of turning from the stench, he hears from the Father. The Father says, make this man alive, and he does. You see, we were dead, but God, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The Bible supplies us with images to understand our total depravity, our total inability, and Lazarus is a great example. Imagine being present at the time when Jesus approached the tomb of Lazarus. None of us would have approached it, the one who was dead, and said, we wouldn't have said this, hey, Lazarus, you need to get up because you know Jesus is on his way, so it's time for you to get up. Hey, Lazarus, come on now. He's really wonderful Savior. You just need to reach out and hold him, and you can get there. Come on, Lazarus. If you just take the first step, he will do the rest. We would not have said any of this because Lazarus was dead. He could not hear. When Jesus tells the crowd to move the stone, Martha tries to stop Jesus and say that he has an odor, or as the King James says, he stinketh. Why? Because he's been there for four days. When Jesus told Lazarus to come forth, he responded. We must see that it wasn't based on any effort or initiative on Lazarus' part, but all of God. Lazarus responded, but this was because Jesus gave him ears to hear, strength to move, breath to live, and the ability to obey. Lazarus responded, but Jesus Christ was responsible for his new life because Lazarus was dead. Pastor Brian Chapel writes of this, Jesus alone raised Lazarus to life. He alone is the life giver because Lazarus was dead and totally unable to do anything. Since we are spiritually dead, 
prior to God giving us new life, the spiritual life we must be must be his doing and to his glory alone. Not only that, in verse 5, by grace you have been saved. What is grace? God providing all the costs of our salvation through his son. Verse 8 and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is all of God's doing. We were dead in sin, but God made us alive in Christ. Next, verse 2, we were enslaved to the spirit of this age, but God freed us to sit with him in heaven. Verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Our former lifestyle was not of true freedom, but of bondage to the forces that we had no control over. We were held captive by sin and death, by three kinds of tyrants in our lives that this passage talks about. The world, the external cultural tyranny, the devil, the hostile supernatural tyranny, and the flesh, the internal compulsive tyranny. We once followed the course of this world. We embrace the ungodly society outlooks. We worship the creature rather than creator. We chose to do it our way instead of God's way. We said we would do what we wanted and whatever made us happy. And how bad did it get? We would erect idols in our society of power, of status, of wealth and leisure, of sex and pleasure, of education and career. All these things we chase after. The objects of our worship, they consumed our time, our talents, and our money. And we sacrificed for them. We sacrificed. We followed this course of the world. We can't forget where this began, though. The prince of the power of the air, Satan, inflames sin in our lives. We can't forget in the Garden of Eden that he did this to Adam and Eve. And God had to cast him out. And Satan whispers to us today these mottos of our society, be true to yourself. You do you. You are what you feel. Be true to your heart. Express yourself. These mottos are in our music, in our entertainment, in our sports, in our hobbies. They're everywhere, and he's just whispering in our ears, choose this. Choose this. This will satisfy you. But you and I have seen the destruction that Satan has made in your life and your family's lives that are blinded by the truth, who are consumed by themselves. He kept us prisoners of his dominion, but God, verse 6, raised us up with him, seated us with him, and the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What does that mean to be raised and seated with Christ in heaven? I mean, we all are right here in this room. When Christ rose out of the grave, he demonstrated his power over sin and death. And his resurrection points to our future resurrection. The fact that he rose again means that we will one day rise again. Our physical resurrection has not taken place, for our spiritual one has already happened. And Paul writes in Romans 6, 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by the baptism into death, 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. He also says in Colossians, for you have died and your life is now, notice this, hidden with Christ and God. Heaven holds our new affections. We are exiles, we are aliens, foreigners in a weary land. Since we now identify with Christ in his resurrection, what this means for us is that we have the superiority and authority over evil powers in our life. Satan no longer has authority over us. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to darkness. We are no longer slaves to the fear of condemnation by God. You need to understand this. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you are no longer captive to addictions. Captive to vices, captive to depression, to greed, to lust, to laziness, to identity issues, to sexual immorality. We are not captive to it anymore, not prisoners anymore, because the power of God has raised us up with Jesus, and the Spirit is living inside of us. One test we must do then is we must see we once were enslaved, but now, verse 2, in which you once walked, verse 3, among whom we all once lived. This is a test that we must see in our lives. We once were filled with anxiety and fear about our future, worried about our health, afraid about finding acceptance from others, but God, now through him, we can live with confidence, grateful each day because we are better than we deserve finding our acceptance in Christ alone. We once were angry and angry at life and angry at family members and angry at God, but God, through him, we can now not live in a fragile state of emotion or create crisis where none should exist. We once lacked self-control, but now we can display self-control when your boss gets on your nerves, when your children act out, when a driver cuts you off in the road, Because God's living through us. You once were engulfed in pride, but now you can show humility. You once were discontent, but now you can be thankful in all circumstances. You once were envious and jealous, but now you can rejoice with others. You once were worldly, but now you can be godly. We were dead in sin, but God made us alive together with Christ. We are enslaved to the spirit of this age, but God freed us to sit us with Christ in heaven. And my last point, we were children of wrath, but God promises endless kindness. Look at verse 3, Paul says, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. By nature means by birth. You inherited your sinful nature from Adam. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. In verse 19, By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinner. David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Every faculty of our person was corrupted and deserving of wrath. Our hearts were deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We were enslaved. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Our affections were perverted. 
We were completely defiled. We have earned eternal damnation in hell. And Jesus described this so frequently in the New Testament. He says that hell is a place of eternal torment, of unquenchable fires, where the worm does not die, where people will be gnashing their teeth in anguish and regret, from which there is no return even to warn loved ones. Some think this wrath is unwarranted, but it's necessary to rid the world of sin and death and decay and destruction. You see, God's wrath is his holy anger against sin and the judgment that results. God's wrath is not impersonal. It's not vindictive. It's not unrestrained or unrighteous. Here's the thing. God's wrath is his love in action. And that may seem counterintuitive, but if God is love and he does everything for his glory, he loves his glory above all things, he knows what's best for us, he cannot allow us to live in a world full of sin. He must judge it. He must pour out his wrath. But God, Jesus mercifully warns us about our future, but God offers grace. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even in our trespasses and sin. What prompted God to act so freely and mercifully on our behalf? I want you to look at four words that Paul shows us the origins of God's saving initiative. Verse 4, his mercy. Verse 4, again, his great love. Verse 5, 7, and 8, his rich grace. And verse 7, his kindness. We're going to look at each word briefly. His mercy. God withholds the punishment we deserve and places that punishment upon the Son. Paul Tripp and Timothy Lane show how God's mercy is displayed in three character qualities. Compassion. He has a deep awareness of our suffering and it leads him to health. Forgiveness. Pardoning a person for offense without treating him like a criminal. And long-suffering. Withholding the punishment that we deserve. It's his mercy, but it's also his great love. While we were still weak, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. God's love for us wasn't based on our worthiness. It wasn't based on being lovely or lovable. It wasn't based on what we would do in return. His love looked out for our best interests. And why did he love us? For his glory. Here's the amazing thing. He loved us because he loved us. There's nothing to add to this. God loved us. We're not saved because we are more qualified. We're not saved because we earned it or we deserved it. We were dead, but God intervened. We were enslaved, but God intervened. We were condemned, but God intervened. And then the, the third word, his rich grace. We needed grace to believe Church family, we need grace to live. As Paul states, God's grace is immeasurable. We can't begin to count all the rich blessings we have in Christ. And he wants to shower us with his grace. Think of the numerous ways his grace is in our lives. Why do we get to be citizens of heaven? Grace. What hope do we have of tearing down the lies that we believe? Grace. What hope do I have of ridding myself of the selfish parts of me? Grace. What reason do I have for hope in life even though I am hurting? Grace. What promise can I stand on when I don't feel good enough? Grace. 
Where can we turn to when the enemy keeps reminding us of all the wrong that we have done? Grace. Jerry Bridges writes, Our worst days are never so bad that we are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. We were dead, but now we are alive. We were enslaved, but now we are enthroned. We were objects of wrath, but now we are objects of grace. We walked amongst the disobedient, but now we walk in fellowship. We were under Satan's dominion, but now we are in union with Christ. Last word, his kindness, verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He might show us the immeasurable grace of his kindness, his favor. Here's the thing you need to understand. God saved us. And in verse 10, it talks about that we were creating Christ Jesus. We were his masterpiece. One of the things God wants to do in our lives is he wants to use the but God moments as trophies, as statues to declare to the world that all that God has done. So think of those moments where God intervened, but God, and share that with others. Share that with your lost friends. Share that with your family members because, because of God and what he's done for us, he now uses us as his workmanship, his masterpiece, to declare his glory throughout the whole world. The Bible says in Matthew 5, 16, let our light shine before others so they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. But God has transformed our lives. Let us share it with others. Let's pray. Father, we want to come to you today and thank you, Lord, for intervening in our life, for saving us, for transforming us, for delivering us from your wrath. Father, help us, help us, Lord, never to forget this. Help us, Lord, to always remind ourselves, to preach the gospel to ourselves daily, Lord, to be grateful for what we have, but not just to keep it to ourselves, but to share it with others. Because if we've been saved, we have such a great salvation, we don't want to keep it to ourselves. Lord, give us a passion and a burden to reach out to others. In your precious name, amen. You are dismissed.